Thank you for listening to this Belly Up Sports Podcast Network product. Some said we go belly up, so we made it our name. And we're still here. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to Theater and College Hoops. I am Subi, going alone today, riding solo. I do have a great guest that joins me later on in the program, which I'm very excited to bring you. It was a wonderful conversation, so I'm not totally alone, but no Taylor today. We'll get to the guest here in a little bit. We're brought to you by Belly Up Media. Go download, subscribe, rate, and review us on whichever device it is that you use. Your college hooper of the day, we're going to go with Reggie Redding out of Villanova. And I actually think he's continuing to make his imprint on, or excuse me, Philadelphia basketball. I believe he is on staff with Nick Nurse at the Philadelphia 76ers. Um, Reggie Redding, really nice player and also a hint as to who we're having on to the program later this episode. It is a Villanova man. We talk about everything uh, about his, his time with head coach Roly Massimino. So you should start trying to figure out who this individual is that we got on, but Reggie Redding, really nice player uh, for the Villanova Wildcats. He's your college hooper of the day. Check out the website at theaterandcollegehoops.com and make sure to follow me at CBB theater to find out where the feat is. You should also follow Taylor at Taylor Damble. Let's open the curtains. and New Year's. I hope you guys are all getting your holiday shopping done and hopefully closing out those last items 
at work. I know I am so, so close to being checked out at my nine to five, but trying to finish up the year strong. uh, And hopefully this episode will help you do that or it'll distract you and it'll get you excited for more college hoops. We got a great, great slate this upcoming Saturday, uh, December 16th. I'm going to be in the building at Gamebridge Fieldhouse in Indianapolis for Arizona Purdue. And we're going to get to all of that. Of course, we got Carolina, Kentucky with the blue blood matchup, Indiana, Kansas, another blue blood matchup, Yukon and Gonzaga. Those are the four monster games on Saturday. Uh, and we're going to get to that after this interview with Chris Walker. Yeah. Chris Walker was kind enough to jump onto the program and it was so much fun inside college basketball. That's probably where you know him from, or, you know, him from his great playing days at Villanova, or, you know, him from his fantastic work on the sidelines, or you might know him as an author of two books. He also sings. Apparently that's something I found out in this interview, just a fascinating guy. And I was able to get in contact with him via Brent Stover, who we had, on a couple of weeks ago. So I'm just trying to run through the CBS sports network guys. And Chris was amazing. Like it, it, what, what was really striking to me with Chris was just how, how good his memory is. I mean, he was naming players, scenarios, moments off the top of his head without missing a beat. And it was really, really magnificent to listen to. It was super interesting. I'm telling you, Chris Walker has, crossed paths with some of the biggest Titans in the game of basketball and even one in baseball. I wouldn't I don't know if he's necessarily a Titan, but he's a big name in the baseball circles, which you'll hear. I don't want to spoil that, but he talks about everything from getting recruited out of Houston and going to Philadelphia. He talks about his coaching journey. He, I think another very poignant part of this interview was the distinction between coaching and leadership I thought that was wonderful to listen to from Chris. And of course, he just has some amazing stories from the Big East. And he's got some amazing stories uh, during his coaching journey. And we also talk a little bit about the the college basketball season as it is today, the landscape and roster construction. He's just a really, really brilliant mind. And he knows college hoops. He knows the players. He knows the details. And I wouldn't expect anything less from someone from that show. So Chris Walker was an absolute treat to, to listen to and to interview. So I'm not going to delay that any further. We got a pretty big episode for you coming up uh, pretty lengthy. So let's dive right into our interview with inside college basketballs on CBS sports network, Chris Walker. All right, we are so pumped to welcome on to Theater in College Hoops, a man who played under Roly Massimino at Villanova, a man who has coached in almost every major conference in America. He's crossed paths with damn near every big-time player and coach in the sport of basketball, the author of The Elephant in Our Room and The Ten Superpowers. And look, you may know him best from inside college basketball on CBS Sports, we got Chris Walker joining us today. Chris, how you doing, man? My brother, man, it's an honor to uh, to be on the show, and uh, I appreciate you having me. And I, I know you had Brent Stover from CBS, so hopefully, you know, I don't pale in comparison to him because he's an hard act to follow. 
No, he's a he's great, and you nailed it, Chris. Do you mind <laughs> if I play a little bit of audio from that last episode? Because I want to just get your reaction. Be, be my guest. <laughs> All right. Friend, this has been such a blast. I mean, really entertaining. I'm going to get you out of here on this. It's a segment that we ask all of our guests at the end of the program. It's called Bring Them Up on Stage. Is there anyone you have in the college basketball space? Uh, it could be outside as well. Love to chat with whomever that yeah. you would recommend me reach out to and bug them like I bugged you uh, and get them on to share some stories as you've been so kind to do. Chris Walker. And make sure you let him know, because he will come on if he didn't make my starting five, but he was my sixth. <laughs> I'll play the audio. Please do. Chris Walker. That's next. Chris Walker. Oh, man. You can't make that up, man. You just cannot make that up. I love Brent. Uh, it's just, it's never a dull moment. Ever a dull moment. How do you leave you out of your starting his starting five though? That's what I want to know. You know, I don't know. I, I think he did it purposely, uh, and he know that he knew that if this interview ever happened, which I'm glad it did, I'm going to make sure I censure him when I see him the next time uh, in New York in the studio. But uh, Brent's a, a really good friend, and uh, I'm glad to be on the show, and, and I'm glad that he uh, put me in guys' direction. Yeah, uh, it's great to have you on, Chris. And I, where I want to start is pretty much your background and how you got to this point, right? You've had a fascinating career, an unbelievable trajectory, and it's not lost on me or our audience, you know, about all the spaces you've been in college basketball. Sometimes folks go straight into coaching. Sometimes they go straight into media. Sometimes they're only a player. You've dabbled in all three. So let's start with your playing days, Chris. Can you tell me a little bit about your recruitment uh, with Roly Massimino and playing in the Big East and growing up in Houston? How did that all work? You know what? I've been fortunate and blessed. Uh, uh, just a quick story. When I grew up as a kid, a young black kid in Houston, Texas, uh, I'm going to date myself the, the late 70s, early 80s. You know, you, you wanted to be a baseball player. Uh, you know, get Dave Parker from We Are Family, the Pirates, Willie Stargell, uh, Dusty Baker, and all of the guys at Davey Lopes for the Dodgers, Ozzie Smith for the Cardinals. You know, you wanted to play baseball. And so um, that was my sport. My grandfather loved it, uh, wanted to play for the Astros. And then all of a sudden, one day, I'll never forget this gentleman was in the neighborhood and said, you guys need to learn some, you know, you guys need to learn how to play basketball and learn skills. And, and no one played basketball when I grew up. Either you play football or you play baseball. And uh, basketball was just a sport that you did in between. So he took me to this high school called Charles H. Milby High School. Called, the coach was named Boyce Honey, legendary coach. I had no idea. I was just happy that I was out of the neighborhood for the day. I go over there. Unbeknownst to me, the coach sees some athleticism in me and he says, you know, you could be a, you could get a scholarship one day. And so I never in my imagine in my wildest dreams ever thought of getting a scholarship to go to college. It just wasn't a part of, you know, uh, something that meant something to me or was important to me in my daily walk. And um, once it, once I made a decision to leave my neighborhood, my entire area, it probably the 20, almost 20 miles from my high school, from my from where I live to go to Milby High School, my whole life changed. And um, 
Uh, quick story, the first year I was there, I played junior varsity. And back then, junior varsity was a big deal because you play freshman, sophomore, junior varsity. In today's world, kids would never accept that. If you're an elite player, you're playing varsity right away. AAU was not a thing when I was a young kid like it is today. So it's very, very, very different. You learn how to play at the park against the old guys. You know what I mean? That's how you learn basketball. And um, I, uh, freshman year, sat on a bench. Uh, yeah, my freshman year, I sat on a bench. Um playing junior varsity and I quit. I said, hold on. So I'm getting up at 5 a.m. every single day to go to this school that's 20 miles from my house because of, you know, an opportunity to maybe get a scholarship and you don't play me. So right away, I'm in the I'm the entitled guy. You guys asked me to come here and you're not going to play me. I'm leaving. Coach comes to my house, changes my mind, says, just stick it out, stick it out. So I made this decision when the year was over, still didn't play the rest of the year. I said, you know what? There was a guy on the team named Thomas Bean. There's certain people. I mentioned Howard Johnson. This next person is Thomas Bean, and he could dunk. I remember he was left-handed. He could dunk. He was a junior. He was older. I took him home with me for the entire summer, right? And in Houston, they don't have gyms. They have these platforms of cement with rims, and they have the beaming sun. And we worked religiously for the entire summer. We probably ate peanut butter and jelly sandwiches every day or ham sandwiches. And then we worked out every single day. And then what we did was when the older guys came home from work, when the sun went down, we played five on five. And in that humidity learned, too, huh? In that humidity, we played five on five. And that's how I learned how to play. So I worked on my skill set during the day with the, the, the drills that I learned. And then I learned and I played him. I put him into practice against the older guys. And I went from being a freshman on JV that never played to starting varsity my sophomore year. And then the rest is history. I was all city, all American, and then uh, ended up getting a scholarship, being a runner for Mr. Basketball in the state of Texas with my rival still to this day, Elmer Bennett, who went to Bel Air. He ended up going to Notre Dame. We both wanted to go to Notre Dame because of David Rivers. And uh, that's when I first learned about the recruiting process. He visited the week before me, committed. And I was like, well, what am I supposed to do now? Like, because I, we both wanted to go there because we loved Notre Dame and Notre Dame was huge back then. But um the other part of it is, so the reason, the way I got to Villanova, obviously I was recruited by tons of schools. Um, I said to myself, hey, I want to play for an African-American coach. I had a great coach. My coach was white. He was great. But I was in a district with all black coaches. So it was something as a kid, you're like, dang, I came from an all black neighborhood. I went to a school that was not all black. So it was something inside of me that says, man, I want to play for a black coach, right? So, so Chris, right, right now I bet our audience is like, <laughs> so he wants to play for a black coach. How the hell does yes. he end up with rolling mass? I mean, I'm excited for this one, man. I feel you. And so uh, I visited George Raveling, right, at uh, uh, USC. Clem Haskins was the head coach at the time at Minnesota. Because I was like, okay, who are the black coaches? So that was, that was the schools I was, I was looking at. Uh, and then also, now I will say there was another school I did visit, Rice. I was a smart kid. I had a, a disabled young brother and had a sister who had, had cancer. So that was a gravitational, emotional pull. And let me have one school at home, right? Five Slamma Jamma had passed with the Tito Horford fiasco. That thing had sailed because I was a big Five Slamma Jamma fan. And, uh, and, and then the other team was Georgetown, right? So and just a quick story, Georgetown in 1985, when Villanova beat them, every kid growing up during that era, that's when hip hop all of a sudden became a phenomenon, right? And every kid, 
that was black loved the Georgetown Hoyers. I mean, I'm sure white kids had the Georgetown Hoyers stuff on too, but hip hop, every hip hop artist, every black kid is like, I want to play for Georgetown to the point where I believe Georgetown was an HBCU like Harvard. I mean, like Howard, because every kid that played on the team was black and the coach was black. So I never traveled. I didn't know. I'm like, I, every kid wanted to go play for John Thompson, including myself. So in 85, when Bill Nova beats them, I cry. I'm like, how the heck did they lose that Patrick Ewing? They got the, you know, Georgetown Hoyer paranoia lose to those guys. And that little white dude, you got to be kidding me. And then next thing you know, where do I end up going to school? Villanova University. And the reason why I went to Villanova, and like I said, the core of me was Milby High School. My high school coach, Boyce Honey, who's amazing, it taught me value system. We went to, F, you know, we had fellow Christian athletes, uh, uh, meetings all the time at his house. We used to go to his house in Galveston as a team. We did a lot of team stuff for camaraderie, and we had a mixture of players on the team from different races, and Villanova remind me of that. And so at the end of the day, that's why I made the decision. Last part of the decision was, and when I came down to my last choice, it was Villanova, Georgetown, USC. You know, it was a couple of different schools. And, you know, again, I, I was very focused on where I wanted to go because kids didn't go to school in Texas because of the Big East back then. And I'll, I'll shorten this story up. There was a guy that already had signed with Villanova and he was an unbelievable player, but he played baseball. And what happened was he got drafted in the first round of the MLB draft. And his name was Delino DeShields. So Delino DeShields decided not to go to Villanova. And that opened up the scholarship where they then recruited me the next year. And that's how I got to Nova. So if Delino DeShields stays in college and never goes to play in the MLB, I would have never gone to Villanova. I would end up going somewhere else. How crazy is that? That's insane. I, mean, what, <laughs> I, I, said, I said in the intro how many people you've crossed paths with and I specified yeah. basketball. But you're connected somehow to the DeShield. Great bloodline, by the way. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> With the DeShield that was a That's amazing. Story. Yeah, that was definitely true. And then again, playing for Roland Massimino was an unbelievable honor. Uh, in the Hall of Fame, he's, he should be in. He's on the outside on the, uh, the, not the steps, but they have this coaching area that they put together um, uh, where he's a bencher, shall I say. And But he's going to be in. He should be in. Greatest uh, upset of all times, pre-three-point line. Uh, to beat the what I still say, Patrick Ewing is the greatest player to ever play in the Big East and the Big East at its zenith. Uh, I had a chance. I was probably one of the only players during my time. There was only two other players from Texas in the Big East when I played in the Big East. There was a guy named Reggie Pruitt who played in Houston at, at Washington High School and a guy named Anthony Allen who played uh, for the Port Arthur Bumblebees. Lincoln Bumblebees, and he played at Georgetown. But unfortunately, he came to Georgetown when Morning and Matamo was there. So never really got a chance to play. But I was the only player that if you turn on Big Monday, if you watch, I started for Villanova, that I was actually playing at a high level in, on Big Monday at Syracuse, number one in the country, playing against the Hoya paranoia. And, the, and, and you know, the funny thing is the difference between the day's kids and then when I played, I was happy. Like I went back, they teased me at CBS, you know, about, you know, shooting six feet, uh, 23s versus Shaq in the NCAA tournament or, or different things. So I'll go back and look at the history of when I played, played against Sean Miller for four years. He's a head coach, actually three years. He's a head coach at Xavier. And I'm sitting there going like, man, 
I cannot believe the environments that we were in when Doug West getting the pennies thrown at him or our playing at Providence where they're serving alcohol, the hardest place to play, or going to Syracuse in the Carrier Dome and beating them when they're number one in the country, playing against Mark Macon and Coach Chaney and McGonagall Hall. Like, there are some unbelievable uh, stories that I've forgotten about. So, you know, when we're doing this interview, when people ask me, I'm like, and I go back and look at the games, I'm like, dude, you played against – Robert Ori. I'm like, what? When they <laughs> when they had Jason Caffey, Robert Ori, Roy Rogers oh, at Alabama, yeah. Dean Smith who was a coach in North Carolina, my boy King Rice, who's a head coach at Mammoth. Like the, the 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 list goes on and on and on. Played against Kenny Anderson two or three times. Like just a great career. And when you think about it, sometimes you gotta like really really go back and your history like, man, this was fun. So the biggies was an amazing, amazing experience. Uh, so when I got off that plane that day in Philadelphia with those cowboy boots on and that blue jean outfit, <laughs> I had no idea from the big five, you know, playing in the big five all those years to whatever, what I was experiencing. But the biggest tournament was the greatest event. I've said this even as an announcer, the greatest event big, to me, it was bigger than the NCAA tournament. The biggest tournament was unbelievable. Still great. Uh, but it's just, you know, again, like it's like an old old guy talking about Kareem when you talk about LeBron. Oh, he'll never be as great. <laughs> the Big East was great back then. It, it was a pleasure. But Coach Master, you know, I love him to this death, to this day. A lot of things I still use uh, when I'm teaching, even when I'm speaking or thinking about basketball. Uh, he's a part of it. And Jay Wright was also on the staff for four years. And then Steve Lapis, who's my co-host uh, at uh, CBS, he actually recruited me to Villanova. Mm-hmm. before he left to become the head coach of CBS. And I worked for him at Villanova and I worked for Jay Wright in Villanova as well. Incredible, Chris. Yeah, you got yeah. me nostalgic, man. You really do. Uh, and so I wasn't, I, I don't even know if I was alive during the early nineties. Like, <laughs> like I was, I was, but I wasn't watching right, uh, right, basketball, right. but I know you got, and you had mentioned some of the great venues and the players that you've played against, but there is one story that I really need you to share with our audience. Okay. Uh, when you were in Seton Hall. Oh, listen, that was, you have to realize the intense rivalry of Seton Hall, Villanova. And this was when Seton Hall was, again, Shaheen Holloway is doing a tremendous job. I love Shaheen. Former, I love when I see the former Big East guys become head coaches. Mike Hopkins is one as well. Uh, Red Archery is another guy I played against at Syracuse. Um and we just, PJ Carlissimo was a head coach at the time. They played at the Meadowlands. We just could not beat them. They were so good. Remember the championship they lost? They got robbed. They still say it till this day uh, with Ramil Robinson knocking down the free throws in Seattle. Um, we're at the Meadowlands. I miss a three to, to win. The Bill Raptor was probably calling a game. I miss a three to win the game. I, my, my best friend in college, JB, tips it, James Bryson tips it in. We go to overtime. We got a chance to beat the hall, as we call them, the hall. And um, this kid, is this, this group is just giving me flack the whole game. I'm like, God. And you have to understand the Big East, man. It's It was intense, you know. Um, I got to look at Russell Westbrook and those guys getting upset with what the fans say. I'm like, man, you couldn't have played in the Big East, bro. You have no idea what, you know, to be at St. John's and hear the stuff that people will say to you or Providence or Pitt and Fitzgerald Fieldhouse. I'm making the free throws. I was a really good free throw shooter, high 80% free throw shooter. So I did not like missing them, you know, because I didn't get many of them. So I'm like, you know what? 
And then, you know, we're going to win the game. Game's over. No one's on the line but me and maybe maybe uh, one of our other teammates. But I missed the second one, made the first one, got my money right, missed the second one on person, grabbed the re- on, on purpose, grabbed the rebound, dribbled around, holding up my finger because I was that player like, ah, I went number one, and then did a beeline for this kid behind the backs, behind the basket, and threw a line drive and just knocked the kid out and sprinted out of the gym, and everyone chased me into the locker room, right? So it was a big fiasco, got sued the whole nine, you know, it was a big deal. But Co- I remember Coach Massimino, this just lets you know the intense rivalry of the Big East. Uh, John Olive, who I ended up working for my first job at LMU, I have to go into his office and sit down and we have to watch the video to see if I, if there was any intent, you know, or if I just, you know, it was an accident. <laughs> you know, you know, sometimes you win, you throw the ball in the stands, you're excited. So you can see me, they slow-mo it. I'm dribbling around in a circle. I'm laughing like it's a comedy concert. And right, and I got my hands up and I make a beeline for the kid and I follow through. And you can see the follow-through and just boom, knock the kid's nachos and coke out of his hands. I even found out that was the first Big East game he had ever gone to since he had been at Seton Hall. And then Coach Massimino was looking at it with me and you can clearly see that there was intent. And Coach Massimino looked at him and says, see, you didn't mean to do it. Get the hell out of here. And walked out of the office. That was that was the Big East, man. I mean, it's a crazy story. I never should have done that. But that was the Big East conference. You know, I remember getting a technical foul for stepping up to Alonzo Morning and just, you know, saying things I shouldn't say, try to intimidate him and stuff. You know, that, that, that that's the things that you had to do those type of things back then in the league. Rick Barnes was a head coach at Providence. Um, John Thompson obviously was there. I mean, Luke Carnesecca, right, was a head coach at St. John's. I mean, just the pageantry of that league was just phenomenal. That's amazing. Thank you for yeah. sharing that story, Chris. Uh, that's certainly something. I might have to reach out to that Seton Hall fan. No, don't Steve do that, Cameron. man. No, nah, no, no. Let's let those let that let's sleep in dog lies. All right, yeah, I can do let's that. Sleep in dog lies. So, hey, you mentioned a lot of great coaches just now, and so you've been on the sideline as well. I'm curious to know. Take us into your thought process, Chris, of when you stop dribbling the basketball and you now want to make or pursue a career in coaching. How did that look? You know what? Uh, my sophomore year, I, I, you know, I had a great, but my freshman year was, was just, you know, learning process. Sophomore year, tremendous year, preseason, all Big East, going into my junior year. Uh, and I uh, had a decent junior year and then got injured, had a knee issue. Uh, didn't stop me from being a starter for my career, but just wasn't the same. And I knew, you know, players know they have a clock and they have a brain. They watch television. They may act like they don't know and they may, you know, the people around them may seem like they don't understand what's happening or see read the tea leaves. But I knew I wasn't going to play in the NBA. And coincidentally, it also was when the NBA went from uh, the number of I don't know if it was 10 rounds or whatever, but it went to two rounds. So I knew I wasn't going to be drafted. You just knew that. Right. And so now if if the round, if it had stayed at 10 rounds or whatever it was before, I, I, can't, I can't remember. I probably would have gotten drafted and then I probably would have tried. I knew I did not want to go to Europe. And I said to myself, I was always a coach on the floor. I was always a guy that knew all the plays. And that was my value as a player because I could always tell guys where they needed to be. Right. 
And there were players that were more talented. It was a player, I, 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 won't, I don't want to say his name, but who was more, I thought he was more talented. He was definitely more talented than I was. But, you know, I knew how to run the team. I knew how to engineer the team. And so it was better to have me out there to make it more connected offensively and defensively because it was very difficult to play for Coach Mass if you weren't a thinker. You know, and uh, Bobby Knight, I love this saying by Bobby Knight. He says, dumb gets you beat more than uh, smart helps you win. Right. So, it, you know, if you want to play for Mozzarelli Massimino and you play Syracuse and in the one possession, you may play five different defenses. You had to know from the ball going from one side of the floor to the other. We may be in blue two or brown or red, depending on who was on the floor, the location of where they were as well. So you had to be super smart. And with plays, I could call plays without coach even calling the plays because I knew what he wanted to run. So that was already in me uh, as a player. And then I said, you know what? I had to make a decision. Uh, my sophomore year, I was like, you know, maybe my sophomore, junior, I said, you know what? Maybe this isn't for me. Maybe I'll go play baseball. Maybe baseball was my calling. So I go try for the Astros. Right. I'll never forget this. I go try for the Astros. And that's when I got the ultimate respect. I'm telling everybody watching this for baseball players. Well, forget about that out of shape, pudgy guy, the, you know, that hits home runs or whatever. Baseball players are very athletic and they're very fast. And that's what I learned very quickly. They're really good at what they do. They just use different muscles in different ways, but they're very good as well. So we killed that right away. You know, I'm like, ah, baseball, that's, that was my high school days. Let me get back to the, you know, to the, uh, to the basketball court and uh, and let me focus on what I'm going to do after this. Now, interesting enough, a lot of people don't know this in college. I was a singer in college, so I sung at the Apollo Theater. Uh, I thought I was going to be a recording artist. So I was like you mentioned, I'm a guy of many talents. You know, Can we get you and Brett to do a duet. Well, maybe, you know, he loves to sing Country Road. That's his song. I'm a, But, you know, I got a couple other songs when I go watch him in New York that I say, man, you know, that's my favorite song, man. Let's go. Let's play that song. He's trying to get me up there to do Huey. Uh, well, no, not Huey. What's his name? Uh, uh, oh, my God. What's the song? Uh, it'll come to me in a second. But um, it's always a song uh, that he always wants me to get up and sing. And I'm like, nah, bro, I'm, 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 I'm going to just watch you do it. You know, I'm going to sit here. I can't I can't believe I can't remember the song. I wish I would prepare because I because it, uh, who is the one guy? Uh, oh, my God. The brother that sings country music. Um, Luke Combs. Uh, oh, no. Black guy. Oh, my God. What's his name? Bro? He's singing Darius Rucker. Darius Rucker. So what's the one song that Darius Rucker is? It's a really popular song that Brent sings all the time. And he Wagon always will. Wagon Wheel. There you, there you go. go. So he always wants to sing Wagon Wheel. And I'm like, no, man, yo, I'm good, man. I'm going to sit here and watch you do your thing. You're the only one getting paid to do this. So relax. OK, but no. Anyway, um, so I was a singer, sung at the Apollo Theater, thought I was going to have this career. So Coach Massimino leaves. I don't know if a lot of people know this. Coach Massimino leaves Villanova to become the head coach at my last year at UNLV. He replaces Jerry Tarkanian, right? And then John Olive, who was his assistant, becomes a head coach at Loyola Marymount University, where Hank and Bo was. So then I say to myself, okay, I can go to Villa, I can go to UNLV, but I'll always be Chris, little Chrissy Walker to coach Mass. And it'll probably be hard for me to, to rise through the ranks. And, and the reason why I didn't want to go play in Europe or something like that, because I said, you know what, those guys can go to Europe and in five years, they're going to need a job. But that means I'll be five years ahead of them in the coaching business. So I wanted to get there, accelerate my career. So I go to UNLV and I work, I'm sorry, I go to LMU and I work for John Olive. 
and it was a restricted earnings job. That was the, the, the title then. And it was only restricted in one thing, the money that you made. And that was true, but it wasn't restricted in hours. But you learned the business. You learned the business. You know, film exchange. You were working players out. It was constantly a gym. That was when the Lakers did not have the arena they have now. They played the forum. So they all their practices were at LMU and every team they played against practices at LMU. So all of the players that I knew during that time, because I still played, were all my guys. They all, they would work out. So Dale Three, Lloyd Vaughn, Derek, uh, uh, oh, I forget Derek's last name, but just a, he played in Xavier. But a lot of those guys all would work out. Magic would come in all the time. I'd open the gym up call them Buck, and they'd have all the celebrities in running all the courts. So I knew I used to train celebrities. It was a great experience, but it had nothing to do with coaching. So then an opportunity to be promoted came along, and I, uh, you know, after the first year, a coach, you know, went for a different opportunity, and John Oliver didn't promote me, and I was like, can't believe you got me out here. You brought me here, and you didn't promote me. He says, you're not serious. So I didn't know what coaching was all about. I was there to try to further my career in Hollywood and music. And so then I said, you know what? I'm taking it serious, taking basketball serious. The next year, uh, another coach left again to pursue an opportunity. It was Tom Pacora, who's now the head coach at uh, uh, Quinnipiac, and he was head coach at Hofstra with Jay Wright. He was on the staff with me. He left to go back east to be the assistant with Jay Wright. And then I got promoted my second, my third year. I want to say my third, my second year or my third year, I got promoted. Uh, and then the rest is history. Uh, well, my career it took off. And then that's when I, I honed in, let go of the entertainment world. I used to sing the national anthem at a bunch of different games. And my, I sing the national anthem at my uh, uh, senior night in Providence. We played Providence. I sung the national anthem, sing the national anthem at, at Loyola Marymount games. So I thought I was going to be that dude. I thought I was going to be, you know, Jodeci and Boys to Men. But I had to let it go to focus on the coaching thing. And uh, and my career took off and it was there for 20 years. But the one story I'd like to tell is that uh, when you get that opportunity as a mid-major coach, and now you're trying to say to yourself, how am I going to get to that next level, the power five level? So what I did was I surrounded myself with, uh, with guys at the time that I thought were the, were the strong uh, uh, role models for me as a young African-American coach, like a uh, black coach like Charles Payne, who was at um, Cal Berkeley at the time. Michael Hunt was at Tennessee. Frank Hayes, I think Frank was at Wake Forest. I mean, no, Ricky, Ricky, um, Oh my God, I can't remember, I can't believe Ricky's names right now. Uh, he played at Virginia back in the day. Ricky Stokes. Ricky Stokes was at Wake Forest. Uh, I can't remember where Frank Haith was. He was at Texas or somewhere. But those guys were the nucleus of the guys that, you know, that I looked up to. And so Jan Van Bredikoff, uh, at the time was at Vanderbilt, lost an assistant, was looking for a young, brash assistant, right? And uh, I get a call and I'm, you know, I'm like, Stoked. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. You know, Vanderbilt, you know, I didn't really know anything about Vanderbilt, but, you know, Vanderbilt in the SEC, great opportunity. So I prepare, have this great conversation with them. I prepare my books, you know, with, with our young secretary at the time or executive assistant, Kimmy. I still remember her name, Kimmy. We put all these books together. I fly out to Nashville. We're in this house. I'm doing this presentation. I think I got it willy nilly. I'm working my thing. They call it good talker walker. I'm doing my whole little spill. And he says, you got the job. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. He said, I actually hired you after I talked to you on the phone. I'm like, wow. Okay. That's, that's pretty cool. He says, but I got one thing to tell you. 
I said, what's that? He says, you misspelled Vanderbilt. I'm like, what? Oh, so, no. <laughs> so on every document, you know, Vanderbilt spelled V-A-N-D-E-R-B-I-L-T. And I, again, in the, I had, it was a quick turnaround to get out to Nashville. And so the young lady that was helping, helping me, I don't know if I told her to spell it that way or whatever, but we spelled it V-A-N-D-E-R-B-U-I-L-T. Oh my, how many, how many documents, how many times do you think Vanderbilt was said in those documents? Like thousands? Thousands probably, oh written my everywhere. God. And it just goes to show you, and that's why I respect Jambrin Bredikoff, who till this day, I believe is one of the smartest coaches. Uh, and I don't like the way his career ended. He didn't get his just due to me. Obviously, you know, his dad, Coach Will Chamberlain, back in the day with the famous, you're not going back in uh, game with the Lakers. But uh, he was a great vessel because he gave him a chance to grow as a coach um, and, and really get some responsibility. Made me the youngest associate head coach in the SEC at the time at like 26 years old. So he really allowed me to grow and I learned the game because I'd always been a Villanova guy, you know, with Roley and, and, and John Olive. And I learned the game a different way through him to be innovative, not to be afraid to be daring, to, to look at the world of analytics uh, and just the way you see the game. You know, he was a, a, a pioneer in my mind uh, in that regard. But uh, yeah, so, so, so think about how many people probably would not have gotten a job if they misspelled, it probably would have dismissed them right away. So I always, because think about it, my career could have been stopped right there. Not stopped, but just, you know, the GPS of success certainly would have taken a different direction. But I've always thanked them for that. And But that that's my one story that I'm like, oh, my God, I cannot believe I, that I did that. But you know what? I had a chance to work for some great coaches. I worked for Steve Alford, who played in Indiana. I worked for him in New Mexico. We had great success. I worked for Jay Wright, you know, you know, what's, you know, the, you know, the hall of famer, Jay Wright. Yeah. I worked with Steve Lapis, who was a tremendous coach in the big East coach, Curry Kittles and Tim Thomas, Alvin Williams. And those guys won a big East championship when the big East was probably still in its heyday uh, with those. Not, uh, actually, it started to expand uh, then. But uh, and, and I worked for Billy Gillespie, who was a great tactician, defensive, tough, defensive minded coach that coached at A&M had success there. Uh, and I worked for Viking Jones at Cal Berkeley. The Cal Berkeley experience wasn't so great. Uh, great place to live, but uh, you know, they got some work to do athletically on the athletic department to get that thing to a different level. But um, other than that, it's a great university uh, and an opportunity. But I, again, my career has been tremendous from the standpoint of the people that I had a chance to be associated with, but more importantly, learn from. Because that's what coaching is all about. You know, you, you work with certain people, you get to learn from them. And these guys were some very successful men uh, and they had an imprint on me. And, this, and, this, and this, again, it, when you see me on CBS or anything I'm doing on the podcast, a lot of those, that information that I'm regurgitating is stuff that that's been, again, I put my own spin on it, but it's things uh, that have been poured into me. Uh, and, and I wear that with a badge of honor for sure. That's awesome, Chris. I gotta. I think after this, I'm gonna take some time to let these two <laughs> stories marinate: the Seton Hall story and the Vanderbilt story. And I'm gonna find story. out and determine which one is my favorite. I mean, True those story. are True those story. are awesome, Chris. Uh, yeah. Hey, so what I want to do now is pivot a little bit to today's uh, landscape here in college basketball. And I was watching you Wednesday night. Great show. If you're not watching, watch inside college basketball. It's the best college basketball show out there really. Um, but so Wednesday night I, and, and I'm watching this and Gary Parish said something that 
aligned with my thoughts. I was okay. like, this is going to be a sleepy Wednesday night. You know, I'll obviously be watching the games, but I don't expect anything uh, earth shattering to happen. And then Chicago State went into Welsh Ryan and beat Northwestern. And then UNLV handled Creighton. Now, Creighton and Northwestern, two top 25 teams, not only losing to teams that you would think are straight up worse than them, but there's UNLV and Chicago State were sub 500 teams, like not even just average teams or anything like that. Can you help us make sense of those two results, Chris? Because I know UNLV Creighton was on CBS Sports Network, too. It was. And listen, people sometimes, you know, they get mad when I say football is very different than basketball. Like, you know, they don't understand FBS, FCS, where there's only like, I don't know, you, you would probably know the exact numbers of just a tad bit over 100 teams that have a chance to play, not even for the championship, but that consider themselves FBS. I think it's FBS, right? And then in basketball, that's 360. But also in basketball, we have an AAU system where kids are accustomed to playing against these guys all their lives, right? And now enter the transfer portal. Now enter NIL, where guys can transfer up and down, grad transfer. I mean, again, football, they do it too. But it's not the same where the NBA pursuit, where guys think they're one and done. They don't have the same uh, – football doesn't have the same allure at the high school level. It does if you're like a big football fan and, you know, an SEC and all that. But from, an, from a basketball AAU perspective, basketball is king, right? Kids are stars like you wouldn't believe in basketball, right? Uh, Zion Williamson or was a star long before we knew about who he was at Duke. Like it, that's just what it is because of the internet and, and the way things are done now today. So I say that to say when you get to the when you get to college basketball, guys have played at three schools. You could be a kid who's an All American at, at Creighton, and you're playing against the Boone brothers who've played at Oklahoma State. You know, Keelan and Caleb Boone, they played in the Big Twelve. They're not worried about what's going on at Creighton, you know. And so, you know, then you've got uh, a bunch of transfers, right? Also, Creighton lost Kaluma. Uh, they lost Nimhard, I'm sorry, Nimhard to Gonzaga. And then, you know, again, they bring in some, some other players, right? But you're on the road. People don't know this. Creighton played in a, a MTE to, uh, the, the year before, last year. They lost two games in Vegas. So there's something about the desert. There's something <laughs> yeah. about the casinos. When they go there, they just don't play well. And we're talking about the heels of what ha- on the heels of what happened at UNLV uh, with the shooting. So there's a feel-good, you know, Kevin Kruger's a really good coach. They've had some, some transfers, like crazy – uh, they've taken advantage of the transfer portal, but I always say the transfer portal, take it, you give it, and it's take it away. And they were waiting for Keelan to get eligible. And it's all about in college basketball coming together at the right time. Winning is very fragile. So look at Creighton. The two teams they've lost to are, which are uh, Colorado State mm-hmm. and UNLV, both Mountain West teams. Okay. The Mountain West is a very good league. They got five teams to go to the tournament the last two years. So that league is no slouch. The problem is, unless these leagues play each other, you never know who's who. But you only find that out during the NCAA tournament when it's one and done, right? So Creighton, a team that shoots threes, I say to myself, listen, all UNLV, do, UNLV has to do is shorten possessions. But they got a score. They, had to shoot, they haven't shot in the ball well. But it's a neutral site uh, game in Henderson, Nevada. And Creighton traditionally doesn't play well there. 
And lo and behold, at some point, you know, the hot streak's going to end and they're in a dogfight. And so and the crazy thing is with, with uh, Kalkbrenner's side being the biggest defensive player of the year, they dominated them in the paint. It's just one, and they shot the ball well. It's just one of those nights. So I say this to say I'm being garrulous, but at any given night, other like other than football, in any given night, you can be beat. There used to, like there's what they call guarantee in buy games. People would schedule the MEAC and a SWAT, right? I call the Pac-12 the SWAT 12 because I believe that the SWAT actually demolished the Pac-12 last year. That's what exactly, and that's why the, the Pac-12 disbanded. I mean, I make that joke, <laughs> and I'm like, they never should have scheduled that because that was the beginning of the end. Well, you look at the scores this year, the SWAC and the MEAC. Look at the teams in those leagues. They're beating teams traditionally they never beat. You know why? Transfer portal. It has changed the game. And in no. basketball, right, unlike football, these guys are moving. It's like moving the chairs. Move in conference, move out of conference. They want to play because of the pursuit of the NBA. Period. I don't care what anyone says. It's not NIL. Pursuit of the league. So now what happens is every team's a dangerous team. And in Chicago State, I saw them in Cancun when I was That's doing right. that event. And I was like, I mean, these guys are pretty good. I remember sitting with Morgan State's head coach. I'm like, hey, listen. You know, you know they're, they're pretty good. Kevin Broads, he like I, I tell you, that team's pretty good, man. I, I know they've probably had some administration issues and financial issues, and they're still the independent. But that coach has put together a good team, and they're pretty good. And I've kind of been watching them a little bit. And this was a, you know, this was coming. I remember talking to one of DePaul assistants. I said, "Listen, man, I know you guys are struggling a little bit, but trust me, do not overlook Chicago State. This is the week I said, do not overlook these guys. I've seen them live. They're pretty good. And lo and behold, Northwestern, after beating Purdue, goes in. I don't want to say lay an egg because the one thing I don't like to do, because I've been that team where people have kind of not disrespected, but look past. We played in the NCAA tournament. I talked about glowingly about Coach Massimino. We're playing Indiana, right? We were the first team in WCC history to get an at-large bid. We win the league, but we we lose the championship in Santa Clara to Gonzaga when they had like Matt Santangelo and Richie Fromm and those guys back in the day. Uh, we had a kid named Brandon Armstrong who ended up being a first-round draft pick, you know, just a, a talented upper you know, upperclassman team. Um, and I remember sitting next to Coach Mass before we were going to play him. He said, you guys got no shot. I said, Coach, we're going to beat him 20. He laughed at me and we went out there and we smoked Indiana. And coincidentally, that was the last game that Bobby Knight ever coached at Indiana because the incident happened the next fall on campus. So I've, I've been that under underdog team and they have to, I've been there, you know, when you have to do those things mm-hmm. and you hate being disrespected, like, because you had to watch film you to beat a team for 40 minutes. is not easy. You know, when they got everything, when the deck stacked against you and they got all the stars and all the accolades, right? But as someone always says, you don't get credit for what you're projected to do. You only get credit for what you do. So if you look past certain teams, which is what's happening in college basketball, nothing surprises me. JMU going into Michigan State, if you watch JMU and you look at their roster and you look at Mark Byington as a coach and Terrence Edwards Jr., and you look at uh, uh, T.J. Bickerstaff and Michael Green is there. You're like, oh man, they can beat them. You know, Noah Fredell. You, you know, and you look at like they can beat them. Yeah. And so nothing surprises me, uh, shall I say, in college basketball. And I always and Brent laughs at me. And I says the first thing I do. Two things I look at. As soon as I get a box sheet, I see an upset. The first thing I do is say, what did they shoot from three? 
And usually, I'm not saying I'm always right, 8.5 times out of 10, the other team was terrible from three. They took too many threes. They missed a bunch. They lost. Yep. That's yeah. what happens because you think he's going to blow them out. So you come out just gunning and gunning and gunning. And next thing you know, you're in a tight game and they have nothing to lose. and You have everything to lose. So you yeah. play tight. They play loose. You know Thanks what I mean? Up. Yeah. And I, I think go. we saw that. I think we saw that with UNLV. One of the things I, I really love that you mentioned about the Boone twins coming over from Oklahoma State. Uh I think it was in the post-game interview with Pete Gillen. I think it was Keelan who who was asked about three-point shooting or, I don't know, just maybe the opponent. And he, he specifically referenced Baylor. Uh, and he said it in a very polished, refined way. But I took it as him basically saying, Pete, I've played Baylor before, man. Like like yeah. you mentioned, like Creighton's great. And I'm not putting any words in his mouth. But it was a fun, fun Wednesday night uh, for sure, Chris. And so staying on this topic of the current landscape of basketball, what I always find fascinating, Chris, over the course of my time watching the game, which has probably been since like 2000, right? So I got 23 years, certainly not your pedigree, but I got 23 years of watching the game and seeing the the changing landscape as it relates to roster construction. I think it's super interesting to me because it, it ebbs and flows between, uh, you know, freshmen or do you want a senior laden team or is it guard play that's going to help you or is it going to be big man play? Now we got the transfer portal and everything. So in today's 2023, Chris, at a high level, if you were to construct what you think would be a potent team, a team that can go to a final four and you take all of those criteria, I suppose, into account, uh, what are you looking for? What what are you prioritizing? First of all, you got to prioritize experience. That's number one. You know, I, I think I, I marvel at what John Calipari was able to build by bringing in five star athletes. Uh, and even he's you know going back to that, like he tried it with the Sabir Wheelers and the Jacob Toppins and uh, that just didn't work, you know, because, you know, Jacob Toppin was where, you know, is wearing a jersey that was once worn by Mike Kilgircross, uh, Kid Gilchrist or Anthony Davis or uh, Julius Randall. And then Savio Willis wearing a jersey that John Wall, uh, you know, Tyrese Maxey, Darren Fox, Jamal Murray wore. Not the same. Mm -hmm. But what I will say is they're still good players like those guys that are coming out. You just can't replace them with guys that are older. Not at that level, the elite, elite level. I still think you need stars. That's just what I believe. So if you're talking about winning a national championship, now FAU is certainly challenged that Dusty May has done a tremendous job with getting a group of guys with some synergy, with some synergy connectivity that are talented enough and a couple transfers and got to the final four, right? I think that's an anomaly, but who knows? That may be the new landscape of college basketball. San Diego State did it the exact opposite way. Uh, they have a bunch of transfers and they have a ton of experience. And we always got to realize COVID had a lot to do with that because there's COVID seniors. So you have guys that are, again, a year older. So I would ask you, would you rather have a kid who's a freshman who had just played high school last year or a kid that's 25 years old? It really doesn't matter how talented this kid is. This other kid has five, six years of game experience. And if you're talking about getting to the the, the shining uh, uh, pedestal, the moment of playing in the final four, you got to have experience, right? You got to have experience. Now, you got to have talent as well. You know, you got to have some guys, as Jerome Tang would say, or, or Scott Drew, it doesn't matter what X and O you draw there, it's what the X and O's can do, 
right? So you got to have guys that can actually play the game. I actually think you mentioned it early uh, uh, before you, you talked about how to build that roster. Like the coach has to be comfortable with the current landscape of how to put this gumbo together. You can't be you know, locked into, oh, I can only recruit these type of guys. I can only recruit these type of guys because your competition is changing the game. So the question is, it's nothing wrong with being a fast follower. It says, I got to mix this up mix this up a little bit. My colleague, John Rostein coined this phrase, player retention, you know, is the thing. And, and you see Marquette, player retention is huge. Shocker Smart's been able to do that. But again, you're talking about a unicorn. Who else is doing that? You know, there no, it's, it's very hard to retain all those guys with NIL in the portal because they can play right away. It used to be you had to sit out a year, do a year of residency. You don't have to do that anymore. And with the ruling uh, yesterday uh, with the kid Raekwon battle from West Virginia, you may be able to transfer every single year without penalty. Now, talking about a smorgasbord or trying to discombobulate the system, that will certainly do it. But as I tell people all the time, they will adjust because for every kid leaving, another kid is coming. You got to adjust. You ain't got much choice. You ain't got much choice. So not to be roundabout, but you got to have experience. You got to have talent. You got to have a stomach for what the business has become. And I actually think you got to find some young stars Right. To be able to you can't just I mean, there are certain guys that are just comfortable with the training portal and just retooling every year. I need 10 new guys. I need 10 new guys, you know, and, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to do it that way. And, you know, who started this? Um my man in Arkansas. Mr. <laughs> it was the first one that came to my mind. Must must started this at Nevada. He yeah. was the one that started, you know, the trend. He, I, I give him credit. Because well, I think people, the Martin the Martin twins were transfers. The Martin twins were transfers from NC State, and and among others. But but what it was was people always thought of transfers in a negative light. Oh, it must be something wrong with him. That's why he's coming. He's this. He's that. Probably a bad student. Probably a bad kid. That was the cloud that hung over transfers back in the day. So a lot of kids would not transfer, and a lot of kids did not want to sit out, right? But what also came out of transferring was grad transferring because now you got an extra year to graduate. So now when you can graduate and become a grad transfer, you can go to another school. So that's also what's changed. So again, NIL's changed. Well, I can go where I get the most, you know, conversation. The transfer portal, I don't have to sit out anymore, right? Grand transfer, I can graduate and go play somewhere else. Those things all change college basketball. The other thing is division two. No one would ever think of bringing kids from Division Two, right? No, it, it, not that South Dakota State was Division Two and Blake Shireman was that, but there was never talk of bringing guys from lower levels that were the better players and think like a Lance Jones could be at Purdue, you know? Dalton Connect at Tennessee. Yeah. Dalton Connect. Like, that just wasn't the modus operandi of higher-level basketball. So it is the landscape, landscape is all over the place. So to answer your question, everything's in play. Yeah. When you're trying to build a program, but you need guys that can score. You need guys that are tough. You need guys that can defend and you need the guys that can think. You cannot play what I, I tell people all the time. I tell young parents, I used to coach AAU. I used to run AAU for Adidas and Under Armour. And I see where the problem begins. The problem begins with entitlement, right? I always say this. I never have a problem with player empowerment. I have a gross problem with player entitlement. Never a problem with empowerment. Get paid, right? 
problem with entitlement. You should get it no matter what, you know? And so that's kind of what's, you know, fogging up the, the system right now. And they got to get some things cleaned up, but it's, listen, it's going to be harder. It's going to get harder before it gets good. But you see some of these teams like your, 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 your alma mater, Arizona, Keyshaw Johnson. I mean, Caleb Love. I mean, let's just be honest. You know, Jared Bradley. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you talk, you talk about <laughs> not on only just, just games under their belt, big time games under their belt. Big final time four, games under their belt. Final four so. games under their belt. So I've, I'm loving it so far. Yeah, who's to say, like, I mean, you guys get, you know, you're number one in the country. You're not number one out those three guys. Not saying that Tommy mm-hmm. Lloyd can't get some other guys, but that is huge. So oh, you yeah. can use it to your advantage. It's a tool. You can decide not to do it. You can take freshmen. But when the other guys are doing something differently than you, you know what you say? Wow, maybe we need to get into that. So when Davo Sweeney and those guys complain, oh, I God. laugh. I'm like, hold on. So you get the best players because you have the best facilities. And now the best facilities or not the thing that that's at the top of the list anymore. That's you right. Know, it's he's, other things. He's so very he, much 10 toes deep in oh his thoughts. And you got to adjust. Like I, we've seen all these coaches adjust. And I think that's what you got to do if you want to continue coaching, right? Like if that's, if that's still your passion, you got to adjust to this landscape. You got to adjust. But my thing is, and it all comes back to kids being compensated. I'm like, it was wrong when it didn't happen before. Mm-hmm. Like anybody that can sit there and say it's just and say, well, they're getting an education. Well, anybody that's gotten a job after college and, and want to make that commensurate to what an athlete has to do at the highest level or at any level, you know, if to say that's not a job and not to besmirch kids. I'm just saying the athlete period. Forget about, with you. you know, basketball and football, which are the true revenue generators, just any sport. Right. I mean, the the uh, um, Olympic sports as well, the time and energy they put in, you're damn right they should be compensated. You know, what level they get compensated at and how they do it, they can figure that out. But surely they bring yeah. value to universities. Yeah, that's a super insightful answer, Chris. And like I said, it's it's in five years, roster construction, who knows what's going to come down the chute and you're going to have to adjust. So I'm looking forward to that. But Chris, uh, what I want to do is have a little fun, do some quick hitters here before we get you on out of here. And uh, like I said, let's just have some fun here. Were you more nervous your first game playing, your first game coaching or being on TV? First time being Ooh, on TV. Man, that's a good one. First game playing first. I don't remember the first game I ever played. We lost to Southern Illinois. All right. Uh, in the NCAA, in, uh, in uh, the Bahamas, I want to say the Baham- in Puerto Rico, the Salukis were number eight in the country. So embarrassed about that because I had no idea what, again, what I was getting myself in the middle of coaching. Uh, the first game, I don't remember. I wasn't, is he being the head coach or an assistant coach? We'll say head, coach. A, the head coach. Yeah. And then first, and the last one is what now? First time being on TV. Definitely first time being on TV because I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, thankful CBS gave me an opportunity. I love working for them. Uh, and uh, you just, you know, the one thing about being on TV, man, you just, you have to learn your space. You have to learn where you fit. You listen to Dickie V and I'm like, well, I'm not going, oh, baby, I can't do that. And, you know, I don't want to be, you know, super dry like some other guys and monotone. And so the question is, how do you fit in? So I would definitely have to say, you know, because I never had been coached or anything. They just put a mic, put a jacket on and says, go. You know what I mean? yeah. So I would definitely have to say uh, being on TV was probably my most nervous of the three. Well, You've certainly overcome it. You're a national on TV. I appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, So I always ask this question to folks 
um, that, that come on. And you've been so kind of detail what it was like playing in the big East, all the crazy venues, but I'm going to go the opposite direction here, Chris. Was there ever a consistently bad place to play in the sense that there was no juice, no crowd? I'm talking about strictly your playing days. Like, was there anything that came to mind where you're just like, how do I even get up for this game? Listen, and I don't want them to be mad when I say this. The place that I hate it, you know, Dana Barrows. I don't know if you remember Dana Barrows. I'm a Celtics fan. I love Dana Barrows. Dana Barrows. So when I, the one of the the joys of the Big East was being able to play in NBA arenas. That was part of their selling thing. So when you play St. John's, you play in the Garden. When you play the Hoyas, play in the Cap Center. Uh, when you played. Uh, uh, Boston College, you play in the Garden. Well, the year that I came to the Big East, they stopped playing in the Boston Garden. We played in the Spectrum, right, where the Sixers were. And so we'd have to play in this new arena they had called Conte Forum. It was cold. They had hockey there. I hated playing at Boston College. That was the one place I'm like, we got to play BC. You just hate them. You just, and they weren't, that, again, they ended up being really, really good when uh, Al Skinner was there. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that, uh, I forget his name. Uh, he used to be the head coach of the Ohio State. Uh, Gary, uh, Gary, um, ah, what's Gary's last name? But they were, they were oh decent. Yeah. Uh, the name of coming, he was a coach at Ohio State. Uh, I don't want to say before or after BC, but um, I just hated playing there. Hey, I'll I mean, tell you. it was not, it was just not, I actually, he was a, co- I think he was a coach there when I played. Oh my God. I can't remember Gary's last name, but I just didn't like it at all. At all. It was the worst. Can't hear you. I lost you. I've, I, I, I have asked this question to some big East and ACC folks. Uh, this isn't the first time Conti's come up. No way. No, I promise you. It's not the I, first time I, I, got this I, have, I have to look up who the coach is at BC. I'll let you ask the next question because I got to make sure that uh, because I can't remember. I can't remember his name, but I tell you, I hated that. I hated that place. They, I mean, they did have, uh, and I can look this up as well, Chris. You're good. Yeah. But, uh, I did. I did grow up in the Massachusetts area. Okay. Uh, oh, during the during the Jared Dudley years, oh. and the Craig Smith man, they were they were so much fun. Um, so let's see here. Was it Gary Williams? Gary, yes, that's who it was. Was it Gary Williams? Was it Gary? I mean, I don't think it's that like the Maryland Gary Williams. It was the Maryland Gary Williams, and then it went to that, Jim O'Brien. Jim O'Brien. Okay. Oh, no, I think it was Jim O'Brien. Jim O'Brien. Because okay. Jim O'Brien, I think, ended up coaching Ohio State, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I think you're right. I think yeah, you're right. Jim O'Brien's or it either came from or whatever, but Jim O'Brien was there during that time. It was That's I hated. I yeah. really, really, really hated that place. But that know, is it was something like else. Cold. You know what I mean? Just the gym, the the hockey. Uh, anyway. You bring nah. back bad memories, man. <laughs> I'm sorry. Now, now, the hardest place was Providence because they served alcohol. And those, those were the most brutal fans. But the place, you know, just, you know, apathetic was BC for sure. We got some Providence fans that listen to this pod. So I'm going to I'm going to clip that oh, and send spot. it to them. They love it. Yeah. Spot. I mean, oh, it's spot. a tough, tough, tough uh, arena to play in. Uh, speaking of tough, though, toughest guy you've had to guard. Oh, my God. See, I played against Chris Jackson. I played against... Uh, Huh. Some played against Sherman Douglas as a young kid. Played against Kenny Anderson. I mean, I played against them all, man. I played against King Ra- The toughest guy to guard was Carlton Screen from Providence. Played wow. against Chris Smith at Connecticut. Just played against some great guards. 
right? Red Archery. But Carlton Screen from, I mean, Providence, man, that dude, man, he used to drive me nuts. He was very tough, quick. Paco, they call him from New York. But he was man. a tough guard. So tell those Providence guys, you know, I'm done with them. Hey, I love Providence. But uh, but I used to give them the business now. Don't get me wrong. Sure. I, I give him a little work. But but he was he was definitely tough to play against. That's awesome. I mean, some of the names you're dropping, Chris, have just been, I, like, I, I'm speechless. Back in the day, man, back in the day. I'm just, it's you know so what I mean? Cool, I'm though. old. I'm just old. Nah. That's all it is. Nah, it's cool though. Um, Hey, so I've gotten to know you over the last couple of weeks and obviously during this interview and it's been great, but this is the pivotal question. That's going to tell me everything I need to know about you, Chris. We're in the holiday season. Are you an eggnog guy or no? Not an eggnog guy. And oh, listen, born, man. Born on Christmas though. Born oh, okay. Day. Also, my birthday's coming up. Won't tell you how Happy old early I am, birthday. Happy early birthday. I appreciate that. But just not an eggnog guy, man. Never really got into it. Uh, you know what? But, but since you said that, I'm gonna, I think I'm going to take a couple of sips and, and, uh, and sample it out this year. But never been an eggnog guy, no. All right. All right. Uh, hey, I want to get serious for about two seconds here. Please tell us about your career in, in being an author and dipping the pen and writing those two books. I think it's super important for our audience to understand the background of, of you diving into that and these projects and also the message of these books. Yeah. You know, uh, just, it started really from a long time ago, something that's been inside me looking at my career and my life and, and watching, uh, having a chance to tutor and mentor young men and being working in the community, uh, when I was with sneaker, working with sneaker companies and stuff and coaching AAU teams. And I just felt like I had something more to offer uh, to people than just coaching. And I wanted to tell my story and I wanted to give my perspective because that's what books are. People giving their perspective on life. Uh, and uh, it was a project I was watching uh, Sly Stallone. I know this is funny, but he, he made a point about, uh, listen, there are a lot of people that do a lot of things, but the bottom line is, I don't care how good a project is. It's all about finishing the project. So what I wanted to do is I was always talking about it, talking about it. And I live by this mantra that 98% of the people in the world are idea people. Hey, man, I can do this. I want to do this. I want to do this. I should do this. I should do that. And 2% are executionists. And I wanted to make sure that I was in that 2% when it came to uh, writing two books. And I'm working on the third one as well. And the elephant in our room is something I looked at in our in my community, uh, black community, where, you know, we have uh, tons of kids who grow up uh, with images of being LeBron and images of being a, a, a great uh, a Jay-Z, which is which is phenomenal. But, you know, but my thing is the perfect world for me is like I would love for kids to grow up in a world where they believe that Robert Smith or Obama uh, or, you know, maybe they can be a kid who creates a Facebook or a kid that creates a YouTube. And that's something that's possible and plausible. So I wrote a book called Elephant in Our Room to kind of channel the energy uh, to be a conversation starter uh, to to get people to in, invest. Forget about the outside noise, invest inside our own community and try to a talk about the problems, but also give some solutions of how we can change some things and just shift the narrative a little bit. Not saying that one is wrong and one is more right than the other, but have an intelligent conversation. The other is is born straight out of coaching of uh, the 10 superpowers. I believe that we all have these superpowers. I won't give any of them away by the book. As yeah, we got to get the book. That's right. They're yeah. in eight inside of us. And these are 10 things that I learned from the coaches that I've worked for 
and and coaches and guys that I work for, work with, and from my high school coach, you know, Boyce Honey, to Wyking Jones, who I coached at LMU, who I end up working for, Cal Berkeley, Jay Wright, Steve Lapis, John Olive, um, uh, Jandron Brudikoff, as I mentioned, and Steve Alford. These are all things that I learned uh, being a part of their network and made me grow and develop as a man. So uh, I, I believe that the 10 superpowers uh, of authentic leadership, that's the thing, you know, and I, and I, and I, one coach told me one time, I won't say his name. He says, I know you think you wouldn't, but you need, you need to focus more on being a great leader. And I've always taken that to heart and mm-hmm. disseminated that information to anybody I talk to and try to impart that knowledge and said, Hey, it's great to be a coach. Coach, you got to do this coach, got, but learn how to lead people usher in a new world of leaders by your example. And uh, that's what that book symbolizes to me about, you know, uh, being a person, a beacon of light, being someone that, you know, is not afraid to be different, to stand alone. And uh, so again, those are things that were liberating to purge and get those out. Uh, And I'll be speaking, I'll start doing some speaking and really just diving into those things uh, once the season ends uh, from CBS. But I mean, I thank you for uh, uh, bringing those up, but I'll tell you this, not easy. If you've sure. ever written a book and you put your soul out there, you put yourself out there. And, uh, but like I said, like those are things that I believe near and dear and uh, you know, feel free to criticize and have some fun with it and create some dialogue. But that's the other thing I like to do too. Even when I do CBS, I like to create dialogue. It's not just about talking about the obvious. When you do a game, and, and they coach us on this at CBS. It's not about what the viewer sees. The viewer, you're doing television, the viewer, it's not like radio, the viewer sees a result. My job is maybe to give some color, because you're a color analyst, to the results, but also let's talk about why the result happened. So now you can educate, not only entertain, but educate the viewer on what's actually happening. So when I write, it's not about talking about, hey, this is why this is happening. This is the cause and effect, right? This is the symptoms of why. But also, let's talk about the origin of it. And now let's talk about what we can do to make things better. So that's in a nutshell. But I appreciate you uh, bringing those two things up. It's magnificent work, Chris, really. It's it's, it's truly awesome. Um, so I'm going to get you out of here on this last question. We kicked off the episode with a question that I asked Brent and the question that I ask every one of my guests that have been so kind like you to come on, share some amazing stories like you have. Is there anyone you think mm. I should reach out to, to have them come on and share some stories like you did and share some stories. Wow. Uh, you want entertaining and colorful and, uh, I trust and- whatever I trust your <laughs> reference, man, because I, you you've know been what? great <clears throat> because it's fresh. And I sit there and I listen to him tell stories and he's funny and he started his YouTube channel and uh, I love to give him a hard time about being a Big East guy. If you don't mind having another Big East guy on, I'd love Roy it. Roy meets world. You got to get Roy Hibbert. That's the guy you got to get on. He's entertaining. He's got great stories, uh, and uh, I think he would be. He's a young budding uh, analyst, he, and he's actually this year going to start doing games and not just doing studio, which I think is great as he's challenging himself. But I think he'd be hilarious. He'd be a great listen for sure. 
Roy Hibbert's next on my list. I yes. may uh, tap your shoulder to get in contact with him and bug Absolutely. him like I like I bugged you. I did see on Wednesday night uh, you were talking about overlooking some teams, and I think you had mentioned <laughs> we were like, yeah, you know, like Villanova was overlooking Georgetown, and I just saw Rose. <laughs> oh, that's, 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 that's what's great about it, man. Like that camaraderie and being able to tease him. <clears throat> but I also, as I said before, about you know not about coaching and leading the difference between the two. I see myself as somewhat of an elder statesman, not only coaching him up, okay, man, this is how you, you know, to be a better broadcaster, but leading him by showing, by doing my work and and the way I deliver and my professionalism, uh, try to lead as well. So again, as I say, through every phase and uh, aspect of my life, uh, I try to uh, make sure that um, I show that and, and, and do it, as I said before, with a badge of honor and Roy, I'm telling you, Tremendous guy, family man, funny, hilarious, got a bright future. I'm looking forward to it. Chris Walker, player, coach, leader, media member, singer, author. Oh, Did I miss man. anything else? Thank oh, you so much man. for jumping on. I appreciate it, brother. Thank you for having me, man. Happy holidays. Happy early birthday, all right? I will, and I'll try that eggnog, too. Thanks, Chris. All right, take care. All right. want to thank Chris for jumping onto the program. That was a lot of fun. Like I said in the intro to this interview, just such a brilliant memory from Chris Walker and the detail in which he told his stories was amazing. And what he was able to do is really bring out the nostalgia, especially of the big East, but really all over the college basketball landscape in the early nineties. He was talking about Dean Smith. He was talking about Robert Ori at Alabama some of these names that you grow accustomed to. And if you're a real hoop head, you know, and appreciate. And so some of those stories were just really, really phenomenal. I think my favorite story, I, I said I was going to take some time and deliberate and come to a conclusion on which story I enjoyed more his Seton Hall story or his Vanderbilt story. I think I got to go with the Seton Hall story. There's just something hilarious about a fan who's on the naughty list, chirping a player, and then just getting a ball thrown right between the eyes. And there's something, there's an added level or layer, excuse me. There's an added layer of comedy to that because it was the fan's first game. I need to know if that fan has stepped foot in the college basketball arena since. Maybe, maybe he's just, he's, he's, he's unable to do so. I don't know. Maybe he's scarred. But some of those stories were really amazing. And I want to thank Chris again for taking the time to jump on. This is a very busy part of the season for guys like Chris. So him carving out time for us uh, is, is what I'm very, very thankful for. So Chris Walker, thanks for jumping on. Okay, let's get you out of here on some very quick predictions for the four monster games on Saturday, starting with Arizona, Purdue, I'm going to be in the building. I cannot wait. I saw a tweet from Arizona's equipment manager. I believe they are going to be going with their old school, like late nineties blues. And I have that exact Jersey with Richard Jefferson. So while I'm probably a little too fat to fit into it, I got to force it at this point. I have to put it on. If they're going with the late nineties, early two thousands blues, I have zero choice. I will be like a a muffin in its in its wrapping, right? Those Pillsbury dope. Like that's what I'm gonna look like. But I gotta do it, damn it. Richard Jefferson jersey is on. But as for the game itself, 
who, who do you think I'm going to pick? Arizona, baby. Going with the Cats. Look, I understand that Purdue might have a better resume. I'd, I'd argue that strictly based on when Arizona was playing some of these guys. And obviously Michigan State's fallen off a little bit. But the Duke win, I don't understand why we just aren't valuing the Duke win in Cameron. Duke, Duke was undefeated last year at home in Cameron. And it wasn't like they were terrible entering that game. All right. Maybe they had a slightly poor showing against Michigan state, but I don't understand why all of a sudden that Arizona win in Cameron is, is like no big deal. Nobody wins in Cameron. So I'm going to take the cats. I think their scoring prowess is going to be a little bit too much, uh, but the matchups all over the place are going to be so much fun. Umar Balo versus Zach Eady, Braden Smith versus potentially Kylan Boswell or Caleb Love or Caleb Love versus um, uh, Foster Lawyer, right? Some of these, or maybe it's Fletcher Lawyer, my fault, my bad. Uh, some of these matchups are, it is Fletcher Lawyer. Good Lord. I'm, I apologize to the, to the lawyer family. Um, so some of these matchups though are going to be so much fun and I, I really can't wait to, to watch it. Um, but I do have to go with, I do have to go with my Arizona Wildcats in this one, uh, Carolina, Kentucky, man, this is a tough one. I've been harping Carolina. I got them as my ACC champs preseason. So I'm going to go with the Tar Heels. It's not as if experience, I mean, yeah, they have RJ Davis, they have Armando Baycott, but Reed Shepard's really come on. Dillingham, they can, but both teams can, can put up points. They're both fun to watch. This is an all-time blue blood matchup. Of course, we think back to the Luke May shot. So many moments. I think Malik Monk had like 40 in that game or, or something along those lines. But I am going to go with North Carolina here in what could be a road game straight up. It's in Atlanta and we all know how well BBN travels, but I just think they're, the, the Kentucky, their their losses are a little bit troubling, right? I think they lost to UNC Wilmington. So I don't know if I've seen Kentucky play a complete, uh, complete game just yet. Carolina hung with UConn. So I'm going to go with the heels in this matchup. Moving on to Indiana, Kansas. I want to take Indiana, but it's it'd be a foolish, foolish thing to do. I want to think back to that Christian Watford shot against Kentucky. It'd be a foolish, foolish thing to do. Indiana, I think, in some metrics overall, is the fourth best team in the state of Indiana, which is pretty crazy to think about. I think it goes Purdue, Indiana State, even Butler, and then the Hoosiers. They're just... So I, I, like, I, I think Indiana... Let me tell you this. I think Indiana is better than a lot of people give them credit for. I think people think Indiana should have like Louisville's record. Like they should be sub 500. They're absolutely not, but they aren't, they aren't a potent team. I like, obviously they're not an elite team. They're not a great team. The question is, are they a good team? I don't know. That is, is to be seen. My whole thing was just saying, folks, we're acting as if Indiana is some sub 500 team that has absolutely zero shot of making the tournament. That is untrue. That I believe is untrue. So they get Kansas at home. It's going to be an incredible environment. Say what you want about Hoosiers and their, their fans, but they show out and they show up. But I think Kansas edges this. I, I do think that this is going to be a closer game than some folks think. And I think 
Hunter Dickinson coming back into the Big Ten. He's he's used to this atmosphere, of course, but I think it's going to be closer than a lot of folks think. But I am going to go Kansas, we'll say, by seven uh, at Indiana. And then UConn-Gonzaga. This is the toughest matchup for me to pick. The toughest matchup for me to pick here. UConn's in Seattle, right? So that's in Washington. Right now, I just think UConn's operating on a slightly higher level. But what there's a bit of fear in me for to pick UConn because of two reasons. One, it's in Washington. But two, speaking of Washington, Gonzaga just lost to the Huskies. So which route are we going to take here? Are we going to say that this could be the start of a small little stumbling period for Gonzaga? Was that a look-ahead game, which is never good? You never want to get clipped by an inferior opponent when you got the defending national champ and a team that could very well repeat coming to your state. Or are we going to say that's a wake-up call for Gonzaga and they're going to be primed and ready to go? For me, I do think that I'm going to give the edge to UConn and I think they're going to win this game. Donovan Klingon versus the Graham-EK matchup. I think EK is not going to be able to bang down low with with Donovan Klingon. What I'd like to see Graham-EK do actually is maybe extend the floor a bit and open up uh, some mid-range jumpers. I don't necessarily know if he has the three-point jumper, but we saw that with Hunter Dickinson in Allen Fieldhouse. I think Hunter Dickinson knew that he wasn't going to be able to bang down low with Donovan Klingon, so he stretched the floor. I don't think Graham E.K. has the three-point shooting prowess, prowess as Hunter Dickinson does, but Graham E.K. is going to have to stretch the floor a little bit to be effective, but I'm going to give the edge in that matchup to Donovan Klingon. And then the guard play, right? Steel Venture, or excuse me, not Steel Ventures. Uh, Dusty, Dusty Strom is, is coming along for uh, Gonzaga, but, excuse me, Dusty Stromer. I'm having a bad time with names. That's on me. Dusty Stromer's coming along for Gonzaga, but right now I'm just so impressed with Tristan Newton. I'm so impressed with Cam Spencer. And UConn's just operating at a whole new level. And Alex Caravan, is he the best unsung player? Like we've talked about Newton, who can be a and UConn folks are saying that he's unsung or he's not talked about. I disagree with that. But Tristan Newton could very well be on an All-American list. Cam Spencer, a lot of folks know from his Rutgers days, a big impact transfer. People know about Donovan Klingon. Alex Caravan just continues. He's been struggling of late from three, but Alex Caravan just contributes to winning. He makes winning plays. And so when I look at the roster makeup, when I look at how potent UConn is, and when I think about UConn's like two-minute punch, their Mike Tyson punch, that will gut you uh, and will have you wobbling all over, all over the court, even though it comes in just two minutes, I don't think you're going to be able to overcome that over the course of the entire game. So while this is a pseudo road game for UConn and they're traveling across the country, right? It's not just that it's a road game in a different or some relatively close place uh, or the middle of the country or even the Southwest or even like that, like they're going across the country I'm still going to take UConn just because of how well they are playing and how well they are operating at this moment. Gonzaga could have used Steel Ventures. I still feel terrible for them that he's done for the season, but them's the breaks. That is life for the Bulldogs at this moment. So give me UConn to win that game. Give me Kansas to beat Indiana. Give me Carolina to beat Kentucky. And then me 
fitting into my Richard Jefferson jersey, Arizona beats Purdue. All right, we're going to get on out of here. want to thank Chris Walker one more time for jumping onto the program. That was a blast. Enjoy this weekend of hoops. It's going to be a lot of fun. I will be in Indianapolis. Maybe I'll even try and get some street interviews. We'll see because basically this is, however you want to describe it, Arizona-Purdue is basically uh, Southwest Purdue versus Midwest Arizona. I mean, they have very, very similar uh, results recently. Not historically, but recently. But very excited to get to Indianapolis. If you're in town, let me know. Say what's up. Tweet at me. Uh, Maybe we can meet up for a beer. But we will catch you next time here on Theater and College Hoops.